From alumni relations at the University of Minnesota Rochester, welcome to Beyond the Nest. I'm Marco Lanz, UMR Director of Alumni and Development Relationships. Today, we hear from 2016 graduate Emily Jorgensen. Emily sat down with UMR Center for Learning and Innovation faculty member, Dr. Rob Dunbar, to discuss what led her to UMR, discovering a career in mental health and addiction counseling, and the importance of not putting yourself in a box. Currently, Emily is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor with the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. In addition to receiving her Bachelor's of Science at UMR, Emily holds a Master's in Mental Health and Addiction Counseling from the Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies, as well as a Certificate in Organizational Leadership from Oregon State University. Please note that this episode contains discussions of traumatic events, including alcoholism, suicide, and death. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, Emily. How's it going? Good. How are you, Dr. Dunbar? I'm doing great. And for those listeners, we've got on our podcast today, we have alumnus Emily Jorgensen. And Emily is going to just tell us a little bit about herself through the course of conversation. So we've got a bunch. I have several prompts and questions, but I say we stick to them only insofar as we have to, <laughs> right? And we just chat away. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. So the first sort of prompt is what brought you to UMR? Sure. So it's kind of a long story, but <clears throat> to make a long story short, um, my dad was down at Mayo for some procedures one day and I was um, walking around Rochester waiting for him to be done and walked across and saw UMR and um, my dad is a UMTC alumni and wanted me to go there and it was too big for me. Um, personally. And so when I found UMR, it was like, oh, the holy grail of exactly what I wanted. Public school, small, health science focus. It it really just ticked all the boxes for me. Gotcha. And so you just kind of walked in and said, sign me yep. up on here. Yep. Fantastic. Where do I submit my application? <laughs> when did you first start? I can't remember. When you first started. I started in September of 2013. 20, ooh, 2013. Mm -hmm. So you were practically OG, man. That was, that was, yeah, a while ago. Um, so since graduating, so you graduated, you finished in. Then I actually, I finished early. So I actually finished December of 2016. Twice, ooh, over a as usual. <laughs> right? 2016. So you finished early. Yep. And then what did you do after that? What are you doing? Well, what did you do? Uh, three weeks after that, I started grad school at um, Hazel and Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. Where is that? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, that is up in Center City, Minnesota. Um, so almost Wisconsin, St. Croix Falls area, um, middle of nowhere, biggest treatment center in Minnesota started here. Um, and really the top tier of addiction treatment um That's so and cool. that and that I mean that evolved for me it wasn't something I always wanted to do um until I was probably ending my junior year starting my senior year um at UMR so moved up there um from Rochester to Center City and did a year and a half there and got my license as an addiction counselor got your licenses so it took a year and a half to get your license and what kind of 
coursework, activities, training do you get there? Yeah, so I did full full course load. So usually four, five classes per, they call them semesters, but they were all in a row. So there was no summer break. Um, and then I did um, internship throughout the whole time too. So not only was I in class and doing that, more advanced coursework outside of class, but um, also on the residential treatment units, working with clients, learning the basics of how to be a counselor. So you were doing that the full time while you were taking classes as well? I was, yep. And how did you, well, obviously it worked for you. I mean, how did, what did you think of it? <laughs> um, you know, I, grad school was almost, and I don't want to give anyone the wrong idea but grad school was almost too easy for me and I really think that's because UMR was so challenging that I was just in that mindset of you know this is how we do it and and it wasn't as complicated I guess I mean I think I was just in student mode still so you're saying UMR prepared you well the rigors of UMR prepared you well for graduate school for your grad program Absolutely. hundred percent. hundred percent. So all the complaining you did when we made you study and work in groups and all that. I know. I know. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Five years huh? later. <laughs> that is fantastic. That's kind of cool. University of Minnesota Rochester is proud to present Kern Center Connects, a new lecture series in partnership with Mayo Clinic and the Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery. Join us on April 19th at 5 p.m. from University Square for the next installment of Kern Center Connects, featuring a discussion on health disparities within Native and Indigenous communities. Panelists to include Kern Center researchers and UMR students. To register, visit z.umn.edu backslash Kern Center Connects. Is there anything specific like about the program at UMR that you found very useful? I think that I was one of those kids in high school who didn't really have to study. You know, it all came easy to me. And then UMR was like, <laughs> gotcha, you have to study now. Um, and so I really built those skills at UMR so that by the time I got to grad school, they were second nature. I was used to balancing a lot of things at once, um, made it a little easier that all my coursework in grad school was a typically about one topic versus like the many different topics you can do at UMR. Um, but really that, I mean, it was learning how to be a student that's, that saved me in grad school. And I learned that at UMR. So that's what Okay. Well, that's cool. Learning how to be a student. Was there anything about the coursework or about the experiences, other experiences you had that helped prepare you? Um, I just being a student. <laughs> I will say public speaking got a lot easier um, because we had to give presentations during grad school. I learned how to do that at UMR. Um, the symposiums, all of those kinds of things. Um, papers for sure especially somebody who took heavy psychology classes at UMR um papers <coughs> were papers were you know second nature to me at that point too um which is a lot of what grad school is also I've never been a strong test taker thank goodness not as many tests um 
<laughs> grad school. Um, but when there were, I felt more confident just because I had gone through, gone through UMR, done tests. What'd you do for a capstone at UMR? I can't remember. I did a couple things. So I, um, was the first student leader of rock recovery on campus. So as I was a senior, they were just starting those that fall of 2016. Um, so I got to work with two students, um, one-on-one really just doing a, a recovery program. Um, and then I also worked at NAMI Southeast Minnesota in Rochester during my capstone as well. And then a bunch of coursework. So psychology, abnormal psych, social psych, um, health psych, all, all of the psychology courses, both at UMR and then the online ones we could take through UMTC. Um, I took as many as I possibly could. Gotcha. And so you've already said you felt pretty prepared, at least from a skills standpoint, you felt pretty prepared for graduate school. Is there anything, how did you discover your path? Like, well, how did you end up doing what you're doing? Sure. Um, Another long story, but I'll try to keep it semi-short. In 2015, yes, 2015, um, my eldest brother passed away from alcoholism. um, And that had a really big impact on me. Um, It was very unexpected. And knowing what I know now, definitely that's something that was very preventable. And that kind of sparked the flame a little bit for me as far as addiction goes. Um, And then from there, I actually had my own suicide attempt in the spring of 2016 while at UMR um, that kind of led me into the mental health portion of of what I do. So for you, this is really personal. This was a personal path. Yes. Yeah. Is that feeling passionate, passionate about it, do you think? Yeah, I definitely do. You know, I I didn't choose an easy job. I'll say that. Um, I work with people who are really sick every single day, Um, not only physically sometimes, but but psychologically. And that's that's not as easy as putting a cast on or giving you some antibiotics. Yeah, that that is definitely, definitely true. Anything in particular? I mean, have you found it to be? I'm sure you're finding reward in what you're doing and finding it rewarding. Has it also been challenging? Or can you talk a little bit about the balance of rewards and sort of labor and pain? Definitely. I think just like with any job, you're going to have rewards, right? So my biggest one is when I get to see somebody grow through recovery. Um, The program that I am a counselor in is, is sort of an aftercare program. So after they've gone through residential, they've gone through all the different levels of care when they're out back in the real world. Back at home, I work with the clients and their family members. So I do a little bit of family counseling as well. Um, And getting to watch them from the day they leave treatment until I can work with people an unlimited amount of time. My longest client right now, I've had for three years. Um, it's, that's the most rewarding part is watching them grow and figure out a life that's fulfilling, that's purposeful, that's enjoyable without substances or alcohol. Um, to, you know, talk to the other side, this disease also kills people. And I've had clients I've been actively working with pass away. And that is always really hard because you care about them. You know, you become an, an active part of their life and 
I could have a conversation with somebody and then a few days later find out that they're gone. So that that continues to be the hardest part of this job for me. Well, I can imagine that would be, you know, we, given what we do at UMR through the psych program, and we don't have a lot of clinical opportunities. And that's been one of the struggles for us is that we've been trying to grow that part of our program. In fact, we're trying to hire someone now to get down that path. And part of the reason I feel so passionate about that is that in some ways, just like people sort of aggrandize the surgical part of medicine until you've actually done it gotten into it, you don't realize how it's going to affect you personally and how, how you're going to manage it and deal with it. And I think sometimes people take for granted this idea that training is necessary in the mental health area, just like training is necessary for surgery. And you don't know if you're going to be ready to deal with the psychological, personal psychological challenges of that until you've gone through that training and sort of learned a little bit about it. So I'm glad to hear that you got that in your well, it sounds like it was an internship or what did you call it while you were at? Yeah, internship. Internship in graduate school. So that was cool. You got it in real time. Was there any point along the way where you're like, wow, this is more than I bargained for? I've had a couple. I've had a couple um, as a student in, in grad school or even let's go back even further to UMR. I worked at NAMI um, in Rochester and just because it's not a clinical program does not mean there weren't people who had severe and persistent mental illness. I saw people in active psychosis. Um, and that's hard when their reality is not everyone else's reality. And they're in the fetal position crying that somebody's trying to kill them. You know, it's hard to, to witness that. Um, I've had to call child protective services on parents, which is so hard to do because being the child of an addict, but also working with these people for a long time, it's hard to almost betray that trust they have for me to, to call CPS and, and keep that, that kid safe. So definitely probably on a weekly to monthly basis have those moments, um, which also kind of makes it exciting. I never know what the day is going to bring. It's not a, you do the same thing day in, day out. That's, I can't, what all, so you had abnormal, you had social, did you take intro with us? You, yeah. Did, did you? I think that, the, I think that was before you really got into the psych program. Before I stepped in, mm-hmm. did I have, I didn't have neuropsych of well, did you have neuropsych of well-being and resilience? Was that? No, but that sounds awesome. Oh, I would love to show you that. I think you would. Yes, I should show you that. You don't have time on this one, but <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes. So probably off script for this, but largely because of the experiences we were having in abnormal and conversations with students around mental health, we started a, a class called the Neuropsychology of Wellbeing and Resilience. And I think part of the reason I, I have this, for some reason, it's not an accurate recollection, but I remember you in that class. And it's not because you were in that class. It's because um, I remember you bringing up points and ideas and topics in some of our other classes, particularly abnormal, that um, were echoing what I was hearing a lot of other students saying about mental health on our campus and mental health in um, college and this isn't about me but the reason i'm bringing it up is because that neuropsych of well-being and resilience class is um about 
helping people introspect about themselves, learn a little bit about themselves, figure out what their coping mechanisms are, um, mm -hmm. so that when those situations do arise, it's not all new to them. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that this class sort of helps everyone all the time or anything like that. But one of the things we're not, we're woefully ill-trained to do as human beings is introspect on ourselves and our own behaviors, why we're making the choices we're making, why we're making the decisions we're making. Absolutely. And I think that um, it was, I, I can't, I think it was abnormal where we were talking about addiction and it was along those lines that I remember you bringing this up. It was about, you know, so something along the lines of why would people make these choices or decisions or something like that. And at the time, you know, we had no, we, well, we still don't know. You know, a lot of times we mm -hmm. don't know why people end up following a path of addiction or not following the path of addiction or being able to get out of the path of addiction, stuff like that. So it's super awesome that you're in that. That was really the connection I wanted to make is that it's, you know, this in many ways, students like you have sort of inspired those things. And it's really refreshing and exciting to see that you guys are going on into those fields. And particularly satisfying that you are finding um, sort of meaning in that area, just from that endeavor. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, after my attempt, I went through a DBT program at Mayo and DBT just, uh, DBT dialectical okay. behavioral therapy. therapy yes i wanted to make sure that was you said that out loud sorry. yeah yeah it blew my mind in my opinion everybody should have that therapy at some point in their life because it's life skills like those coping skills you know things that seem basic common sense oh i know this yeah you do know it but do you practice it bingo yeah, that's exact. That's the tough part is that the theory to practice is easy to sort of impose and see on it in other people. It's a lot more challenging to see it in ourselves, right? Uh -huh. So the number of times, I one of the funnest, most fun things, I think you maybe encounter this with your patients or with your, uh, yeah, with your patients is you know just asking somebody point blank. So why did why did you try, why did you do that? And the number of times you hear people who believe that we have this sort of free will this will to choose and they say oh, i don't know you know it's mm -hmm. incredible it's amazing i don't know why just that anyway yeah that that comes up a lot when when people relapse um another kind of i don't want to say perk but cool part of my job is they're not in treatment so they have access to substances at this point they're home mm -hmm. and so relapse happens and that first call after it happens, that is, that's the main focus. So what happened? So what happened? And I always get a little chuckle from my clients after I ask that. And they're like, well, if I knew that it wouldn't have happened, not necessarily true, but okay. What happened? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's, but having people practice that before they, you know, before it gets into those situations, I think it can only be helpful. UMR and Beyond the Nest would like to hear from you. Check out this episode's show notes for how to get in touch and share your UMR journey. Now let's get back to Emily and Dr. Dunbar as they discuss self-imposed boxes, building self-confidence, and advice to one's younger self. So when you think back about the breadth of the experience, first of all, we haven't said, where are you actually working now? Sure, yeah. I, it's, been an, it's been a journey, like I said. Um, so when I got my license, um, I was practicing um, in Center City at Hazelden, and 
got offered to take my position that I'm still in now out to Oregon. Um, so I actually moved out to Oregon 2019 and lived there for two years and just moved back to Minnesota. So now I'm in the St. Paul area. Wow. Okay. So how did you like Oregon and why'd you come back? Beautiful, stunning. Love it. Weird that there's not snow on Christmas, but that's okay. Um, I came back really, I mean, I think COVID is the biggest reason. Um, I've been working from home since last March, still working from home with no return, expected return date. And I missed my, my support system. You know, you talk about like we, what we just talked about. My support system is a huge part in my mental health and well-being and being away from them, especially during a pandemic when I can't get out and make new friends and, and find a support system was really, really difficult on me um, to the point where I started developing panic attacks. And so I made the really difficult decision to pick up again and move back again. Um, so I've been here for six months. But you were doing, were you online out in Oregon anyway? Telehealth when COVID hit. Yep. Were you telehealth before COVID or? We were. Yeah, we were. With some, I mean, some people, if they were in the area of the Hazelden sites that I worked at, um, they could come in and we could have a session in person. Okay. That's why you had to be there is there was the possibility of being face to face. Correct. But once COVID hit, it was no possibility of being face to face. And we don't know if we're going to get back to it. Correct. So you're like, I'm back in St. Paul. So family, friends, social network, social support. Um, But it wasn't the weather that brought you back? (laughs) I can't say that it was, although it was uh, like 120 degrees in Portland this summer. So I'm kind of glad I wasn't there. It was hot here, but not that hot. So we'll see what happens when winter comes. There you go. Yeah. Are you in a house? You don't have to shovel. I'm in a townhouse. I bought a townhouse, so they shovel for me. That's cheating. (laughs) (laughs) So what, okay, when you think about the breadth of your experience now and you think about, you know, everything you've gone through, what would you sort of tell your younger you? Would you say, you know, you should listen to Dr. Dunbar, he's right, or what would you say? Uh, Take neuroscience, because (laughs) you'll look back and wonder why you didn't. <laughs> I love that. That's kind of self-serving. I didn't think that was going to come up, but I like that. Um, I think, and and this is more now personal. Now is figure it out and do the work then, so you don't have the backlash now. And what I mean when I say that is, I'm doing a lot of my own personal growth that I think would have made my experience even better had I kind of figured that out at the time um but it would be different um I totally get that I mean that one that's so hard though right when we talk about that because when that personal growth that happens later I mean I think you're lucky that it's starting now for you that's fantastic I don't think it started for me until I hit about 45 (laughs) so like yesterday or oh you're so kind (laughs) um but I mean I think that the trick is to go a step deeper into that. I mean, in many ways, once you get older, it's sort of obvious. It's like, yeah, I wish I would have grown faster. I wish I would have done this better, focus more on that. How would you 
what advice would you give yourself to try to make that actually happen? Stop worrying about other people. Oh, that's a good one. Just, you know, I think I wasn't, I wasn't a partier, so I didn't go out to that. I mean, but there are, there are many times I can recall where I could have been more social and wasn't, or was social and maybe should not have been, um, worrying about, you know, having friends or what so-and-so thought of me or rather than just doing me, just being myself. Um, I think it comes with that age and being in a new place and all of that, but it, it definitely set up a, a snowball effect that took me a while to get out of. How do we do that for our, I mean, because I see that, I see that all the time. I experienced it as well. You know, that the insecurities of our particularly, you know, fresh, freshman, first year, second year in college, mm-hmm. right. And how that can sometimes, um, I don't want to say this, lead to bad decisions or lead to lack of focus on ourselves and being confident in ourselves. And I wish there was a way in my world, like when we're teaching, it's, it often manifests as, you know, um, does anybody have any idea, you know, anybody know the answer to this? Crickets, nothing. Right. And I've polled students and talked to students. And the reason that they're afraid to answer is not because they're afraid of me telling them they're wrong. It's them being afraid of the people in the room hearing me tell them they're wrong you know what I mean yeah which is definitely (laughs) I remember that I remember that 100 percent so how do we get around that you know how do we get people to be more confident early on this is gonna sound I don't want to say bad but it's gonna sound different it's not about you that's the biggest thing I've learned it's not about you people are for better for worse inherently self-centered And you're probably analyzing what people think about you more than they're actually paying any attention to you. That's right. That's that adolescent egocentricism rearing its ugly head, right? Mm -hmm. It is. And I think that if somehow we could disconnect people from that and just say, I mean, because it's hard because by saying it's not about you, we're really trying to get them to find the comfort in themselves to be secure and confident so they can be more confident them. You know what I mean? So by oddly by saying it's not about you it's not the focus of the world isn't on you we're allowing them to focus on themselves does that make sense yeah and I still struggle with that I mean I just turned 27 and I still you know I have clients who get mad at me or don't want to answer my you know don't want to come to session and I think what did I do wrong you know am I not a good enough counselor but it's not it's not about that at all it's usually they're relapsing or they're busy or what have you they they don't know how to express these emotions in a healthy way and communicate because they have been so sick for so long but even if they're not you know with my siblings I still do that and we're all you know in our 20s and 30s I think it's it's our natural way of seeing the world and it's takes a lot of practice to not be in that mindset yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of this twisted fundamental attribution error that we're, we're selectively applying, right? Where mm-hmm. we're saying, you know, why are those people, why are they not responding? Well, because something I did, right? It's, it's weird. It's us applying that fundamental attribution error to ourselves rather than to someone else. 
it's kind of twisted in a way, but it's, it's so interesting though. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing a lot of work on attachment styles and like reparenting and all of that. And the stuff I wish I would have done, you know, five, six, seven years ago, but it's so interesting to see all of it connect and come full circle. Yeah. I like to see it. I mean, I, I think it's great. You're doing really cool stuff. I mean, honestly, so basically what's, let's recap your advice to your younger self is don't worry about other people as much and it's not all about you. Yeah, I guess so. I, I would say so. I think I spent so much time trying to fit into a box um, that, that I thought other people wanted me to be in and who would have known what my mental health would have looked like if I had paid more attention to myself and less attention to everybody else. So we've got a little bit of time. We might as well probe that a little bit. I mean, at the end of this, what was the box that you saw yourself fitting into? Like the box you, you think you felt like you had to fit into? Yeah. Um, so I went into UMR wanting to be a pharmacist. Um, as I mentioned before, my dad was at Mayo. He had cancer growing up and passed away right before I came to UMR. And I knew all of his medications, what they did, when to take them. That was my, that was my niche. I was like, I'm going to be a pharmacist. Um, and I got a C in organic chemistry and convinced myself I was never going to be a pharmacist. Um, and so it was, it was like, I'm going to explore. Right. But for my cohort at the time, it was like, if you're not going to be a doctor, what are you doing here? And there was nothing that any staff, faculty, anybody said. It was kind of this unspoken like expectation within our group of if you're not coming here to either do the um, go to medical school, go to pharmacy school or do the um, other track. What are you doing here? Yeah, it's it's it almost was. And this is how that I kind of started getting out of that is being somebody who went the psychology route when that wasn't really done at UMR um, was awesome. It was so empowering. Yeah, because you, you were unique, right? It was they in some ways you you like you said you carved out your a different niche for yourself, right? It was yeah, I'm not doing that, but I have this whole island over here that you don't understand or mm -hmm. don't understand. That's kind of cool. And I went through, I went through a couple other things before I landed on this. Um, you know, when, when I decided, oh, pharmacy is not for me, then I was like, well, maybe I'll do med lab sciences. And I'm too much of a talker for that to be a, a position for me. And <laughs> so it was kind of a journey of figuring out who I am which kind of leads to that too, coming out of that box that I thought people were putting me in. It's fascinating. I mean, I think that's at the core of it for a lot of the research that I'm doing that I think that UMR, a lot the core of what UMR really is about in many ways is helping people overcome the idea of those boxes, right? Mm -hmm. But we also have our own little big box, rather, you know, the health sciences. Mm -hmm. And I think just by nature of many of the relationships we have in the area, you know, the, the pre-med, pre-farm, pre, 
OT, pre-PT, they're like, they're like these nice little nested boxes. And that's the way people are thinking, which may be the right way for them to be. But like, sure. you know, in other cases, it's particularly when, you know, we want to have the opportunity for growth, like in your case, right? It's how do we get them to think beyond the boxes? And I've got my own ideas. What do you think? I mean, are you asking me to come teach at UMR? <laughs> I'm asking. <laughs> I'm asking. I mean, that would be great, but I'm I'll not come back to UMR. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> um, but when it comes to getting people to actually get outside their box, mm-hmm. right? To start thinking, how do you think that happens? When do you think that happens? Um. For me, I mean, I've always been more science oriented, more health oriented. I was always more interested in that. Even before I knew I wanted to be a pharmacist, I, it was my, that was my passion. And so UMR fit that box, right? It checked that. And knowing that, okay, this plan, this project, trajectory I had for myself isn't going to work out. What am I going to do? My number one goal was to be passionate and be happy with what I was going to do. So that's right there. Hold on. That's what I'm trying to figure out, right? Because we talk about people breaking out of their boxes, but the precipitating event or the catalyzing event oftentimes seems to be the realization that they don't fit in the box they thought they did. It's this sort of, in some cases, it's kind of sad. In some cases, it's it's really profound for students. Chemistry happens to be your example, right? Getting a C in chem and you're like, well, I'll never be a pharmacist. <laughs> and so then that box now is no longer exists for you, right? And you have to start looking for other boxes. And it could have went both ways, right? Like I could have, I, I closed that that door for myself, but I could have, try to push harder through it if I yeah. wanted to. Definitely. Yeah. Like we were saying, like, because on, on the one hand we say, you know, look for the box where you fit. On the other hand, we say, you know, um, don't think you don't fit just because you didn't get a perfect answer on a chem test. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. That balance is hard. Hmm. So it was, you know, I was one of the people who, when we got that course catalog for next semester, I was going through it. I was prepared at my registration time with all of the classes I was going to take. But for me, it was reading through what they were and what was I immediately drawn to. Okay. Can't say I was immediately drawn to physics. <laughs> Wasn't my cup of tea, um, but like abnormal psych, I was drawn to that. So this is you thinking less about what other people are saying, you know, about the box. How do you align with what you think other people want from you? And you thinking more about yourself. What is it you want for yourself? Yeah, they weren't going to take the classes for me. Right. Yeah. But I think it was at that point, really, and you started, it sounds like you started to focus on you, you know, what is it you wanted? What is it you were drawn to? Blah, blah, blah. Versus like... That came in the last couple of years at UMR when we had more freedom to choose classes versus taking those generals, which, I mean, I'm glad we took them right away because I didn't know myself freshman year the way I knew myself senior year. 
Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's definitely true. So what, what do you got next? What's the next, what is it you, the next stage of your professional path? Apparently teaching at UMR. <laughs> Listen, Neil, oh my gosh. I want to be very clear. There was no promise implied. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know. Um, that's a great question. I get asked that even um, by my boss now because we kind of set set goals each year and have long-term goals. And um, I don't know. I think I-, yeah, I, I think It sounds like you kind of, the idea of teaching appeals to you. Teaching, definitely. I, you know, they hire every once in a while at the grad school. So I've thought about that. Um, leadership, I've thought about going into that. Um, but I'm also happy in direct client care. So I'm kind of taking it a day at a time at this point, not to be cliche for what I do one day at a time is a AA slogan, but that's right now I'm, I'm happy. Thank you to Emily and Dr. Dunbar for their thoughtful conversation. And thank you for listening to Beyond the Nest, UMR's alumni podcast. Beyond the Nest is produced by University of Minnesota Rochester Alumni Relations and edited by Marshall Saunders with Minnesota Podcasting. Check out this episode's show notes for how to stay in touch. And we'll be back next month for another engaging conversation with a Raptor alum. Mm-hmm.